All right, turn with me to Mark 7, please. We are in uh, the book of Mark. We are uh, we started the series back up a few weeks ago. Um, and Jay, did we get a map? Did we get the map up there? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Sometimes I feel like getting slides in, and then I just forget to email them over. Uh, so I want to spend just a minute on the map here. Um, because if you look, if you look at Mark 7 really quick, look inside your Bible at Mark 7. What we see is, uh, is Jesus is encountering some Pharisees, and they're trying to figure out like, what does it mean to to be a good religious person? What does it mean to be a follower of God? And Jesus is really clear in describing that it's not about how many times you wash your hands or whether you do all the religious things appropriately or perfectly. It's about what's going on inside your heart. It's about how God has encountered your heart and shifted it to a different kind of transformative way of living in the world that goes beyond the washing of hands and goes into more of a, of a deep abiding relationship with God that affects every other relationship around you. And so Jesus has this conversation in Mark 7 over here by the Sea of Galilee on the left side in the Bethsaida area. He travels up towards Tyre, if you see that. And a few weeks ago we looked at the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who was demon-possessed. So he goes into Gentile territory. Gentile just means not Jewish. Tyre was a place where uh, Jezebel was born. And if you remember the stories of Jezebel, who was uh, known as a baby killer, she was known as a very wicked and evil queen who wanted to get everybody to obey and follow her god, Baal. And so when people think of Tyre, they think of Jezebel. So he goes there, he encounters a Seraphonician woman, he heals her daughter because of her faith, and then from there it says he travels up to Sidon, and it, we don't know why, it just mentions it, and it's obviously on the way nowhere. So something must have happened, and Mark just didn't put it in, who knows. From there he comes back down and he travels around this way, all the way down to right over here. This is where we're going to pick up today, he's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, um, in this area, and this is Gentile territory. The first time we hear him about about Jesus traveling to that area of the Sea of Galilee is, I think, in Mark 4 when he encounters that demon-possessed man who, who Jesus gets all the demons out of him and they go into the pigs. Remember that story? And they all go drown. It's, it's sad for the pigs. I get it. Um, but that's where he was first. And remember that guy, that, that man that he healed, and the guy's like, oh, please, I just need to go with you. I just need to be with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you need to go back to your town and tell the people about what has happened. And this man, this Gentile, previously demon-possessed man, becomes the first missionary towards the Gentiles over there. And that's where we pick up, is uh, in that same area location that Jesus encountered that man. So turn with me to Mark 7. We'll be in verses 31 to 37 today. Um, I'm going to read this through slowly. I want you just to be aware of the words, and you can listen while I read or read along with me. But I want you to, to notice if there's anything that's coming up specific for you. Any word that might be coming up, any um, phrase that might feel... Uh, like God's maybe putting it in you for some reason, and then we'll share that together. Uh, this is something that Jason led us through in Bible study last week, and it was, I was at parent night, 
what was that called? Back to school night. So I missed out on it, but I heard it was like such a rich conversation. (laughs) But let's read this together. It says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Anything jumping out from that passage? Any word that is just kind of swimming around in your brain? David. Well, I was at the Bible study. Yeah. And the word that stood uh, out to me was begged. Begged. The people were desperate mm. to see this guy healed. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Uh, why didn't Jesus want them to say what had happened? Right. Why? Why wouldn't Jesus want the truth to be told of what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Alec. All right, turn with me to Mark 8, and we'll read verses 22 to 26, and we'll kind of have that same, that same sort of thing. If something comes out, if there's something that comes back up, then go ahead and we can speak that up. They came to Bethsaida, so now they're in that same region that he started in, in the Jewish territory. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. When he, when he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village, when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Or it says some manuscripts say, go, do not go and tell anyone in the village. Anything come up from that one? Yeah, Robbie. I think it's almost like um, those things, it seems like, are, those, are for those individuals hmm. and just for them, and then they can maybe actually function, you know, function in society the way that they were meant to mm. rather than, it, it kind of takes away from that if they're just going and saying 
what's happened. It's, yeah. it's like not getting to the point of what Jesus, or maybe the kingdom of God is about. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. It says that he, the first one, he took the person aside, and mm-hmm. this one, it says he took the blind man outside the village. Yeah. Away from where people could actually see it. Right, right. Yeah, that they both were taken outside of the area. Yeah. Well, this man apparently had sight at one time because he knew what a tree was. Ooh, that's a good observation. I, I didn't catch that before. I like that. Yeah. Marta? Reminds me of like that. And like, kind of like, you know, if somebody spits in your eyes now, you know, it's kind of like. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. But grandmas oh. do it all the time. Grandmas do do that all the time. It's true. They're always spitting on their finger and cleaning your face. <laughs> Bill, what about you? are yeah they're they're significant for sure yeah david just the touch yeah let's say were you gonna yeah 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 uh, is Mark characterized by all this physicality? I mean, that's a good question. Um, you know, actually, this is the only. These are one, some of the only times that we read of Jesus being physical with another person. So I don't know if it's necessarily Mark's way of doing it. I think Mark set it up this way for a reason, though. I think that he set it up where it starts off in Jewish territory, where the the religious, pharisaical folks weren't able to receive what Jesus had, and so then he goes somewhere else where people are desperate uh, for healing, desperate for this encounter with Christ, and then and he, and he meets them in that space. And remember a couple of weeks ago we looked at, um, right in between these two passages, is Jesus feeding the 4,000, and how there were seven baskets of food left over, which represented God's approval um, of the seven different... Gentile tribes that were living in the area of Israel before the Israelites came through and took over that land. And so the the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and then the 4,000 with the seven baskets left over in that Gentile area, showing of God's approval of the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And so there's there's definitely like some rich undercurrent happening here uh, when it comes to what is happening in the in the um, the cultural undertones of it all. Um, yeah, go ahead. Right. Right. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I really, um, I really like how, kind of jumping off of, of a few things, but really hearing how Robbie was saying, like, when Jesus uh, uh, worked with these individuals, he was bringing them into, like, a space of shalom, bringing mm-hmm. 
situation and the begging um, and going into a, a desperate territory, kind of. Uh, I love how it's kind of like this illustration of like, yeah, Jesus can perform miracles in other places, and they're like, can you just say heal me, and then he does it. But what, how much more beautiful is it when you're coming in with a stance of like, please engage with me, please have a process. Yeah. This is what I want, and the experience is so much richer. Yeah. Jesus is ready to go into a much richer interaction. Mm. These individuals still meet you where you're at and go to a deeper, more beautiful, <coughs> grimy place. Um, I think that's super. Yeah, cool. that's good. There's so you see within both of these stories, they 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 they're both men who have been brought into this encounter with Jesus by either family members or some sort of friends, people who are advocating for them essentially. They are both removed from the crowd and brought into more a more isolated location. They're both experiencing some sort of like circus act of healing. It reminds me of like Benny Hinn or some sort of like TV personality, the preacher personality that's like, if you send me $5,000, I'll give you this Kleenex that I blew my snot into. I don't know if that's how it works. I don't watch them. But it's, you know, it's like that whole smoke and mirrors sort of way. It it feels like that in a way because it doesn't really match with the other types of healings that Jesus usually uh, performs. Both groups are told not to tell of what happened. They're both told to remain silent. One group is Jewish, one group is Gentile, but they're both experiencing and encountering Jesus in a very similar fashion. During this time, having a child born with a disability or some sort of a handicap was a life sentence for a family, not just for the child. Um, They were considered a liability because it was another mouth to feed where the child couldn't grow up and become some sort of a financial benefit for the family someday. Uh, During this time, there was an accepted practice where if a child was born with some sort of disability or some sort of inability to thrive, uh, they were a sickly child, or if the child was simply born female and there were already too many females, then it was okay to then take that child, the family had the right to take that child, and place the child outside of the city gates in this specific location or around a mountaintop that usually the mountains had some sort of a cave and people could leave that child there to then die. It was called, the practice was called exposing infants. It would be to leave that child to be exposed to the elements or to be exposed by, to wild animals. Um, and people knew about this. This was not some sort of like horrific thing. Aristotle talks about it. Um, and it, just the sense of, Aristotle, is that the right one? Yeah. Sorry, just for a second there, I was like, did I say the wrong name? Uh, so there was a sense that um, if you saw the child, then the child was fair game. And anybody could come and take the child and then raise that child to be a slave for their household or to be used to, to fill the brothels. Uh, and then later on, what we see in historical uh, different documents is that after Christ's life, death, and resurrection... The followers of Jesus, followers of the way, as they were called, uh, they would go and find these infants. They would adopt the infants as their own to give them a new name. And most of the children wouldn't live past the first few months of infancy because they were very sick, because they were very disabled. 
But the, these early Christians felt like it was absolutely necessary to give these children a new name and a Christian burial because they saw great worth where the rest of the world saw a nuisance. And in a, in a society where a man's value was based upon what he could produce, a handicap like being born deaf or blind actually cheapened one's humanity in this society. A young man would be expected to carry on the father's livelihood. So if your dad was a fisherman, then you became a fisherman. If your dad was a politician, you became a politician. If your dad was was a carpenter or a mason or even like a priest, you would become a carpenter, a mason, or a priest. You were valued by how efficient and productive you could be in the field you were born into. Now, we know this to be true today as well in many ways. There might be greater sensitivity towards friends and strangers with disabilities, but being born disabled or being disabled later on in life is exhausting. Like most of us know what it feels like to break a bone and not be able to move around as efficiently as you once could. Most of us know what it's like to live with chronic back pain and have that back pain affect everything you do. It is exhausting to have that kind of pain in your body all of the time. It takes so much to feel this. You know how difficult it is to navigate through the world when you are on crutches for a while or you're in a wheelchair or you have a cane or you need a walker to get around. No one wants to be an inconvenience or slow anyone down. And so when you are in that space, any of us who have been in that space, even for a short time, we feel a lot of it. But not being able to see or hear or speak would be a challenging existence for anyone. And I get that we, you know, you would learn how to get around or, or you'd be able to survive through some of these challenges. But I think oftentimes what we've tended to do when we approach the scripture like this is we romanticize the situation. We make it into something that really wasn't that difficult because Jesus healed him. Everything's okay. I think when we read the scripture, we tend to take the humanity out of each situation But these are real men who lived their lives probably in a very difficult existence in many ways. And they probably believed in some way that they were some sort of an inconvenience to other people. There there was no handicap sensitivity. There was no ableism training back then. And for many of us today, we are still so inept in that sort of a conversation. And maybe they felt... Maybe they felt like they were an inconvenience a lot of their life. Maybe they were told by their father that they were just that. Maybe they were expressed by other people in that same way. And what's interesting that I see is that neither of these men went to Jesus on their own, from what we can tell in the text. Neither of them advocated for themselves or seemed to believe that they were worthy enough of getting healed or figuring out a way to get to Jesus in the first place. But other people believed in their worth enough for them. Their friends begged Jesus to heal him. The word for begged in the Greek is parakaleo, which is the same root word that we get for paraclete. 
A paraclete is one who advocates for and provides comfort for another person. The word paraclete is the word that we have for the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our advocate, the one who begs for us to see our worth. The advocate is not begging to God that God would see us worthy. The advocate is begging to us that we would see that we are worthy. This is who the advocate is. The Holy Spirit is the one who knows your worth and value even when you don't or most other people don't seem to see it either. The paraclete sees in you, metaphorically speaking, that, that sort of disabled state where you might be blind to the sin in your own life, where you've turned a deaf ear to the injustice in this world, where you've chosen not to see the anger in your own heart, where you've remained mute to speaking out against areas of need. The paraclete sees the way that you have shut off your ears or how you actually must close your eyes because of the trauma you've received or the abuse that you have endured. And the paraclete begs for you to know your worth regardless of the years of voices that have said otherwise. Because once you know your worth, once you know how like absolutely valuable you are, how much God absolutely loves you, how loved you are in your current state, this paradigm shift of receiving that love actually changes everything within you. It's like you are grounded in that identity first and foremost as the beloved child of God. And most often, we need an advocate in our lives to remind us of the truth of who we already are. These friends begged Jesus, and they did so because they knew their friend's worth, even though most others didn't. And Jesus responds, but he does, he does it like differently than most of his other responses, as we've seen. Like He doesn't move into the town square. A lot of times when people are, when he comes into a new town, he goes into the marketplace where everything is happening. It's really busy, and people bring people to him there, and he heals them there. Throughout Mark, we see this again and again. But here, he moves out to a place, away from where they found him. He sees them. He invites them to a quiet place and away from the voices, away from the stairs, away from areas of familiarity. If you can't see, it's really intimidating being in a place that you've never been. If you can't hear, it's hard to be away from places and people that you are familiar with. And maybe he does it to disrupt the familiar. I mean, like if you think of the times that you've gone away on a missions trip, or when you've gone to a camp, or when you even just go hiking in the woods, you oftentimes experience God's presence more fully. Not because God is more fully there, but because you are more fully present there. You are more aware of God's presence. Not because God's not like showing up in your life every day of your entire life, but all of a sudden, all those things are disrupted, and you're able to experience God's presence more fully in a place where he's been with you all along. And what Jesus seems next, it does, or does next, it, it kind of does seem like showmanship or some sort of like snake oil magic trick or whatever. But Jesus, I think Jesus communicates in the way that each man would need him to communicate. 
for the deaf man who can't hear Jesus say, be healed, who's watched people yell at him his whole life, or speak louder, or attempt to communicate with slower words, possibly in a mocking way. This man experiences a type of sign language, of lovingly intentional physical acts of communication from Jesus, who puts his fingers in his ears, who touches his tongue, who bestows worth and value on on this Gentile man that his friends had done before for him. And then you see the next passage of scripture in Jesus. It says that Jesus took the the blind man's hand. He led him outside of the city. He didn't say, come on over here. Hear my footsteps. We'll be there eventually. He like held the man's hand and he gently leads him to a different location. And Jesus then spits and places his hands on the blind man's eyes to bestow worth and value on this Jewish man as his friends had done before. I don't think Jesus healed these men to make their lives easier or better. I think sometimes we think of the healing that we need and we're like, if we could only get our lives a little heal, a little easier or better. Like Each of us have this idea in our minds that if our circumstances or our situations change, if our kids finally began obeying, if my knees worked correctly, if this chronic pain dissipated, if my marriage wasn't so difficult, if I had a better job, then everything would be okay. And sometimes our desires for change come from a place of comfort, of desiring more comfort, but other times our desires for change are born out of a place of desperation. If you're struggling with anxiety or with depression, or if that physical pain that you are in is actually causing depression in your life, there's this level of hopelessness that can become a very strong voice in your life. And those If those hopeless voices, those lies that say that you're worthless or that your life is worthless, if those voices gain power, they can dominate and they can overshadow the truth of your worth. And it feels insane to think about like that the lie declaring your worthlessness could possibly overshadow the truth of God's love for you as born on the cross. Like it's weird to think that like hopelessness and, and, and depression and all of these things in our lives that are true, real, horrible experiences could possibly overshadow the love that Jesus has for us as, as shown on the cross. But the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes it does. And when it does, the community needs to come around begging for Jesus on behalf of the person who cannot beg for themselves. The community comes around and and medication comes around and therapy comes around and all these things that God has put in place for people to, to let those lies of hopelessness dissipate. This is what we are called to be as the church. That love that died on the cross for you to experience how worthy of that love you truly are. But disabilities can bring a type of hopelessness into our lives that ableism tends to ignore or platitude away. 
Because if we are able-bodied people, it is very difficult to understand the pain that somebody has experienced who is no longer able-bodied. I'm sure this man's life changed in many ways. <laughs> I, I'm sure that it changed in more ways than, than both of these men could have possibly imagined, but they were still the same people. They were just more abled. Sometimes Jesus changes our circumstances in miraculous ways that benefit us from a worldly perspective, but, but if it just makes life easier, then the benefits are fleeting. If the change in our circumstances isn't bringing about a heart change, if we're not being drawn closer to the Father's love, if we're not being brought into a deeper and more abiding relationship with Jesus, then the change in circumstance is only temporary. Healing is always temporary because our bodies are forever failing. We are all in the process of dying all the time. Gravity wins. If there's a if there's a fight against gravity, gravity will win 100% of the time as our skin starts to fat, sag and and our joints and our muscles get pulled down towards this earth sagging downwards. It happens to all of us. But if our goal is finding value and worth in being able-bodied or being forever beautiful or being widely successful, and our goal isn't to experience how worthy and valuable we are because of Christ, we miss out on the life that Christ has created us for. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 2. Anything coming up so far before we go into this next passage? Anything like, anybody have any thoughts or... Yeah, this Disagreements. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Any any disagreements though? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah Bill. You got tears streaming down my face right now, man. Sweet. What's that, Bill? The compassion that, that these men, the blind men, have after that and going back yeah. in, into their communities and, and being able to do this and see and the seeds that they get to plant. Yeah. The compassion of love and understanding is overstated. Right, right. That compassion, it just continues forth. Yeah, first Paul, were you going to say something? No, okay. Uh, first Corinthians will be in chapter 2. I'm going to actually read verses 6 to 16. Um, yeah, so it says, this is Paul. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, What no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. Amen. I mean, when we think of how the world works, how what, what the world says is most important, The most important things are wildly successful lives, unending beauty, having the ability to do all the things that you've always wanted to do, having no disabilities whatsoever. And and God is saying, I think that Paul is saying here through, through these words that the mind of Christ is something that seems foolish to the world, but is something that that is so, resonates so deeply within us because the Spirit of God groans within us for this reality to come true in our lives. We need differently abled, neurodiverse people in our lives. We need adults on the autism spectrum in the classrooms as an aide or as a teacher to paraclete, to advocate, to comfort, to beg on the behalf of my kid who's on the autism spectrum so he can then know his own value and his own worth. We need those people in those classrooms. I lead an adult Bible study once a week where my friend Nanette, who has Down syndrome, reminds me every time we gather that she loves Jesus and she loves the Bible and that Jesus loves her. And that's it. She says it every single week. I love Jesus. I love the Bible. Jesus loves me. He died for me on the cross. That's what she says every time. And it's because it is so real. All those extra things that happen in our lives, she is laser focused because of what the world would call a disability is something that is used for the advantage of furthering the body of Christ. I need my other friend who is blind, who who when I read the scripture, he picks up tones in the scripture being read. He is able to bring a whole different perspective to God's word because he has that different ability to do so. I need him in my life. Our bodies are always failing. They are always fading away. But through Christ saying, as we read in that first, be opened. The soul is constantly being renewed. The soul is constantly being reborn. There's always something that needs healing in your body, but a be opened, is a state of the heart, not a state of the body. And every day we invite Jesus to speak those healing words, those healing words of truth of be opened over us. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to know the things that are revealed to us through the Spirit of God who lives within. 
that advocate, that comforter, that, that paraclete is begging for you to grasp how valuable and worthy you truly are. And then from that state of being, we as the church are meant to be used by God to bring that same value and that same worth to others who are also in need of healing. Any last thoughts before we go into our time of worship this morning? Repeat what your friend says again. Which one? Oh, Jesus, loves me. Jesus. Yep, yep. Jesus loves me. Wait, what does she say? She says, uh, she loves Jesus, she loves her Bible, and she knows that Jesus loves her and that he died on the cross for her. That's what she says every week. It's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I believe that the Spirit of God renews our souls, renews our hearts. And so as our bodies fail, it, 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 they are constantly being renewed. One of the people, somewhere in the Bible, maybe you all would know it better than I would, says that every day that we are being, we are being renewed in, in the, the type of our use. And it doesn't mean that we found like a new retinol sen- serum or something for our face. It, that's not about what it is. It, it's about this internal renewal. Yeah. And my question to you is, even our word of God said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, transformed by the renewing of the mind. Yeah. And as our mind is renewing, is that renewing our spirit and our hearts? I, I truly believe that. I mean, I think, I think all of it is so connected. I, I, I don't think that we're meant to be people that, that allow our bodies to that our bodies aren't important or our bodies are just a vessel that's carrying the most important treasure. I believe that there is an interconnectedness and our minds, our brains allow us to experience uh, God's, God's moving in our lives. The, the, the feelings. Yeah. That, that interconnectedness that we have with, with it all. Yeah. Well, let's pray. And then we'll go into a time of response and worship together. Jesus. Um, I thank you for this for this passage. I know that this passage is way thicker and deeper than we could have ever gone into this morning. And so maybe something that I said is with somebody, but maybe something that the scripture said is implanted in them. And I pray that each person will walk away from here with the word that you've given them, the word of truth towards them, the word of conviction, the word of um, that transformational of the mind and the body and the heart, Lord. I pray that that will be so true to each person in this place. I pray that each of those words will combine together into a word for our community, that you will remind us that we are not alone in this world, that we have you with us, but God, we have each other, begging and advocating on behalf of each other. For that, we give you great thanks. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So every week um, when we gather, we sing three songs after we get into God's word together and uh, we'll worship, and uh, and we take communion. We practice, um, it's called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Uh, Eucharist means thanksgiving, so really it just means that the posture that we have as Christians coming before the, the bread that represents Christ's body broken for us, the juice that represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of all things, all mistakes, all of those things, the only response that we can have towards those is gratitude is thankfulness and so that's why the, that's why it's called the eucharist because we come before this 
incredible act of God's grace and mercy and love with a heart of gratitude. And then we allow that gratitude, that thankfulness to then transform us into being people who then bring out the love of God into every encounter. So we practice open communion. You can come back anytime. I will take us, I will give you a piece of bread and you can dip it in the juice. Um, so why don't you stand as you are able and we'll sing together.